beginning at verse 6 is where we will start uh, the reading of the word and then the exposition of the text that has been read in your hearing. 1 John chapter 5, beginning at verse 6. Allow me to read these words to refresh your mind um, this point. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Pretty clear, isn't it? My title for these verses is this, The Divine Testimony to Jesus' Identity. Courts across America convene during the week and witnesses are called to testify. They do not testify in court, that is, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, but they have testified to the real identity of who Jesus Christ is. Their testimony was needed by the people who received this letter from John, the Ephesian church. They needed this letter and they needed this text because Antichrist, false teachers, had infiltrated that local assembly. And they were promulgating lies about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The text before us is a recounting, it's a record of the testimony of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit regarding God the Son. Now, I'm going to tell you right up front about Jesus. They may even lie about him. They will misrepresent him. They will, in fact, blaspheme him. They even use his name as a curse word. They trivialize him. But we who know him, we who know the word of God, we who have heard the testimony and have believed it by the grace of God, we take God at his word about Jesus. We trust God's inerrant testimony completely. We give no place no credibility to those who contradict God's truth about Christ, even as they come through the agents of Satan. Now, for this testimony that the Father and the Son have given and recorded here in the Word of God, we need to look at the means of the testimony. And that's our first point here this morning. We look at verse 6. When it says that this is the one who came, it's referencing verse 5. It's talking about the Son of God. The one who came, he made his public appearance as Messiah. 
the one who came, you need to understand he is not talking about Jesus' existence being temporal like ours. In fact, Jesus has always existed. Would you agree with me? In fact, he is the eternal son of God. John 1, 1 and 2 tells us this among other verses. So that he came. This one who came in his public ministry, his appearance, came by, verse 6, water and blood. These are the means. The Father's testimony is given in two historical events, two historical instances represented by water and blood. Water and blood are really word symbols. They stand for our Lord's baptism and our Lord's death. Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist in the River Jordan is referred to here as the water. Jesus was baptized because he did what the Father wanted in identifying with sinners for whom he was going to die. In addition to this, when he came up out of the water, water, a voice out of heaven came. It was none other than the voice of God the Father. He identified Jesus. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Two things, approval and identification. A voice out of heaven saying, this one is my beloved son. This is my son. He testified to his identity. The designation you need to understand, son, has biblical import. Any Jew who had heard that word, son, would immediately thought of Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. That's part of a messianic psalm. It says there in that verse, verse 7 of Psalm 2, you are my son. God the Father speaking about God the Son. He is designating him as his son further. We need to understand what son means. We need to understand the sonship of Jesus Christ. When God calls him son, when the Bible refers to Jesus as son, the son of God, he is saying this, that the son, Jesus Christ, and God the Father share the same essence. He is saying that they are of the same nature. The father was saying, this is my son. This is the one who shares my attributes. This is the one who is like me. He is co-equal. He is co-eternal with me. In other words, he is deity. That's what it means. He did not come, therefore, become the son at his baptism. He has always been the eternal son of God. How wonderful it is. Jesus, in fact, uh, said to his disciples in the upper room in John 16, 28, that he came forth from the Father. Jesus, on a number of occasions, let it be known that he came from heaven. He said, I came down from heaven to do the Father's will. He always indicated his origin was not earthly. His origin was heavenly. Unlike you and me, we were born into the world. Jesus came into the world. We had our origin at our conception. Jesus has always existed. His humanity was conceived in Mary's womb, but he has always been the eternal son of God. 
So at the commencement of Jesus' ministry, at his inauguration in public ministry as Israel's Messiah, the Father identifies Jesus as his son. This was a verbal identification. This was a verbal testimony given by God the Father. But you need to understand something here. That the father also identified his son by events. He, he let us know who he is. Not simply by a verbal uh, affirmation which is sufficient. But also by supernatural events. And that's where the word blood comes in. You see the identification in the water. But here in verse 6, the identification by blood. Blood... Uh, this word stands for death and all that was involved in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ as he made atonement for our sins on the cross. We read in Matthew chapter 27 verse 45 that while Jesus was on the cross, he was there and in that period of time from noon to 3 p.m., darkness covered the land. Now you know as well as I do, something unusual is happening when it's high noon and from noon to three, there's darkness. That was supernatural darkness. Supernatural darkness symbolizing the father for son. The son bore our sin and he received in himself the full fury of the wrath of almighty God that should have been ours. The full weight of the divine wrath was poured on God the Son there. And in that darkness, that forsakenness, as Jesus became sin for us. Jesus let us know what that meant. It was abandonment. He was, uh, the Father abandoned the Son. That's why he cried out in repeating Psalm 22, 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was a supernatural testimony of the spiritual darkness to the reality that Jesus is the Son of God. There's another supernatural occurrence connected with our Lord's death on the cross. At the moment of his death, the curtain in the temple at Jerusalem, it was torn from top to bottom. It is a massive curtain. It separated the most holy place, the place where the high priest went once a year, from the holy place where the other priests function. It's this, this massive curtain. And the Bible says it's torn from top to bottom. The reason is because men could have torn it from bottom upward. But what God did said, I'm doing this. I want you to know this is my work. That's why I said from top to bottom. Only he could do that. And that was indicative of what God was doing. No longer were we separated from God. He had accepted the payment of his son's sacrifice. And as Hebrews chapter 10, 20 tells us, a uh, new and living way was inaugurated through us, to, uh, through the veil rather, that is his flesh. Flesh meaning his death. There's a new and living way into the presence of God, a way to God, and it's through the death of Christ, symbolized by the tearing of the curtain in the temple. A supernatural event. Another miracle occurred at the moment of when Jesus died. There was an earthquake. Rocks split. Tombs were opened. 
And many of the saints who had died were raised from the dead. And they entered Jerusalem and were seen by many. What that tells us, this is God's son. This, this is God saying, this is who he is. When he saw the earthquake and all that had happened, the darkness and all of the events surrounding uh, the death of Christ, a centurion who was on duty at the site, he remarked with these words, this was the son of God. He understood and believed the testimony. And I, I just can imagine this centurion, he had been in many crucifixions. And he had seen many people die, but he had never seen anybody die like Jesus. He had never seen all the events that occurred around the death of Jesus. He couldn't conclude anything other than this is the Son of God. He got it right. This was no mere man who died on that cross. Christ Jesus. Now you look in the text. And John continues. Not with the water only, but with water and with blood. You might say, well, John, you just said that. You said he came by water and blood. Now you say not with the water only, but with water and with the blood. We got it the first time. Well, you need to understand something. John is not a doddering old man who can't remember what he just said. He said this with um, good reason. John was addressing a heresy about the person of Christ that was being taught. Remember uh, those heresies I mentioned earlier, the Gnostics, uh, the beginning of Gnosticism, a heresy about Jesus Christ, about salvation, that it infiltrated the church at Ephesus. They falsely claimed, now get this, here's, here's, here's what they were saying. They falsely claimed that at his baptism, the Christ spirit descended on Jesus. But... At his crucifixion and before his death, the Christ spirit left him. Now, that's significant. Because at that point, Jesus, in their argumentation, their lie is that he became a mere man who died on the cross. This is insidious. This is sinister. For this was an attack on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. This was no mere academic thing. This was a reality that has to do with our eternal well-being. Because we need to know who was it that died on that cross? Who was it that claimed to be Messiah? We had to know. When the lies come, you, you better know who you believe, right? And John, what he is doing is he's confronting this heresy that was in this church by the false teachers. You see, if Jesus were a mere man who died on the cross, it means that he wasn't the incarnate second person of the Trinity. It means that he did not come in the flesh. It means that he was a man born in this world just like you and just like me. 
It meant that Jesus was just a mere man who died on the cross. How could a mere human being have conquered sin and death for us? He could not have. So who he is makes all the difference in the world as to what he was doing on that cross. His work is connected, what he was doing on the cross. Only the God-man who came in flesh could have substituted for us. His substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. Only the God-man could do that. Why, why is that important? I'm going to tell you something. Only one who is a divine person could absorb the full weight of divine wrath for all who would ever believe in him. No mere man can do that. I'm going to tell you what mere men do. Mere men who die without Christ, they absorb the wrath of God in a place called hell forever. Jesus Christ hanging on that cross on those moments of darkness. He was bearing all the wrath of God, paying all our sin. He became sin for us. He didn't sin, but became sin for us, paying for our sins. All the sins of all who would ever believe throughout all human history, he paid for it in his own body. Only the God man could do that. No mere man could do that. We have to die for our own sins. That's why it's important. This vicarious, sacrificial substitution by Christ on the cross. For all who would believe, he bore the wrath in our sin. I'm going to tell you what he did. In his dying, he defeated death. Isn't that wonderful? Only the God man can do that. In his dying, he defeated death. You see, when Paul writes, oh, death, where's your sting? He was asking that. He was taunting death because he knew where it was. See, Jesus took the sting and it's not in us. It's gone. We don't have to deal with it. He eliminated second death for us, for all who believe. There is no possible, there's no potentiality for us to be eternally separated from God in the lake of fire because the Son of God has addressed our sin. That's why it's important to know who was on that cross. No mere man. He said, but he was a man. Yes. <laughs> he had to be a man. He was a perfect man. He had to be a man to represent us. He had to be God to pay for our sins, but he had to be a man to represent us in doing so. Only God could do that. Isn't that wonderful? The God man. Addressed it. The son of God. It's there. Well, God the Father testified uh, to who he is but also the holy spirit he testifies too about the identity of jesus christ he did so in, by his involvement with jesus you see it there uh, make sure we know i'm not just making this up it says it is the spirit who testifies because the spirit is the truth bottom of the verse right how did he do it he did it first of all the very beginning in the womb of mary was conceived a child, an unrepeatable supernatural miracle. Excuse me for the redundancy, supernatural miracles, because it's a miracle, it is supernatural, right? <laughs> it was the Holy Spirit who, his influence, his power, created the humanity in 
Mary's womb, the humanity of Jesus Christ. His conception. Luke chapter 1, verse 35. Because Mary, as you call, she couldn't understand, how, how, how could I have a child? I'm a virgin. And she's told, now I'm going to tell you another thing. John chapter 1. Would you go there with me? Jot that other text down. Look at it later. John chapter 1, verse 33. I want you to see something. A couple of verses. John chapter 1, verses 33 and 34. Holy Spirit's involvement. This is, is so, so significant. Identifying who Jesus is. It says, I did not recognize him, John the Baptist said, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus, identifying him. As the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, I'm going to tell you something. Only a divine person can baptize with the Holy Spirit. No mere man can do that. And the testimony is this is the Son of God. But not only that, we're all familiar. There's another example of Holy Spirit's involvement. We're all familiar with Jesus' temptation by the devil, right? You do know, I'm sure you know this because you read the scripture, you, read, you pay attention to what it says. It was the Holy Spirit who impelled him in Mark's terms, I believe it is, who had him go to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now let me explain something to you. The reason for that is it had to be demonstrated that Jesus is the Son of God. The devil, all his temptations, and Jesus waited till he had fasted 40 days was weak, and the devil comes along with his temptations. Jesus brushed them aside, quoting scripture. You know why the devil couldn't defeat Jesus? Because Jesus is the Son of God. His triumph there in the temptation demonstrated conclusively that he is the Son of God. That's why the Holy Spirit had him go there. Let's prove who you are. fact by the way by the way this is not here part of my sermon we give this to you when remember in the temptation turn these breads and these stones into bread it says if you are the son of god that's what satan said the greek is uh the reality is you the son of god. you know the devil knows jesus is the son of god and you know what that rascal does he gets foolish people to deny the deity of jesus christ and he knows that jesus is deity he because he was in heaven with him once he knows who he is. The Holy Spirit demonstrated, sending him there. He defeated the devil. Defeated the devil. Now look closely at our text here. A couple other things about the Holy Spirit. It says, who testifies? Present tense, testifies. His ministry is ongoing. Holy Spirit interprets and applies the truth of who Jesus Christ is to human hearts. He affirms it in our hearts continually. The unbelievers out there hear the gospel and those who come to faith in Christ. It's the Holy Spirit who is working to affirm the identity of who Jesus Christ is. Mm. It's, it's a wonderful thing. Another thing. The Spirit is the truth. The truth. 
this is a, a way of saying that by his very nature, he is utterly truthful. He is totally reliable in his testimony about Jesus Christ. He is the truth, spirit of truth. Now, as we move a couple of verses here, verses 7 and 8. Now, this is not exciting stuff, but it needs to be addressed. Because if you uh, read various versions of the scripture, you're going to run across this problem. Verses 7 and 8 in our text, in New American Standard Bible, is the actual Greek. But there are some English versions. For example, the King James Version and New King James Versions version of scripture include these words listen to this for there are three that bear witness in heaven the father the word and the holy spirit and these three are one and there are three that bear witness on earth end of quote i remember as a younger person years and years ago when i read those verses, i said wow this is wonderful this is a text for the trinity then i discovered no these verses are spurious what i just read to you are not in the original that john penned in the first century. They were added later by a copyist, and we know this, because what textual scholars are able to do, they can go back and look at earlier and earlier manuscripts. Can they see in the Greek manuscripts what was there? The closer you get to the original, in terms of time, you have a better understanding of what was in the original. You understand what the copies come later and later and later, historically. Erasmus, a Dutch humanist who argued with Martin Luther, um, he had said on one occasion, because uh, he didn't put the text um, that I just read you from the King James and New King James in his Greek editions, the first and second one. Someone said, if, uh, challenged him on that. He said, well, if, I, if you show me one a Greek text that has those verses, I'll put it in my next edition. They showed him one. But it was from 1215. It wasn't from the first century when John wrote. But he had already given his word. He should have said, well, I've changed my mind. But he went and stuck it in there. And that's how we got it in our later versions of the Textus Receptus, the TR received text. They're spurious. Now, I'm going to tell you something. Those verses teach the truth about the Trinity. But we don't need those verses. Don't ever use the King James, the New King James Version in that passage of Scripture to argue with the Jehovah's Witness. Because I'm going to tell you something, they know they're spurious. We have enough evidence in the rest of the Scripture to prove the doctrine of the Trinity. And we do. Now, with that done, we see verses 7 and 8. For there are three that testify the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three are in agreement. Genuine text asserts the threefold testimony of the spirit, the water, and the blood. And it's interesting, there are three uh, witnesses. And that comports with what Deuteronomy 19.15 says. God laid down to confirm anything. There had to be two or more witnesses. Here we have three. Testimony is authentic. So we have the means of divine testimony. We've seen that. Let's look now at the superiority of divine testimony. Verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. Um, that word, if there, means reality. We do take the testimony of men, reasonable, reliable men. We believe what they say, do we not? 
But the testimony of God is greater. Moving from the lesser to the greater argument, God's testimony is greater because of who he is. Who is he? He's God. His character, uh, for example, let me tell you what the Bible says. Three places that talk about him, his character, uh, regarding his word, his truthfulness. Numbers 23, 19 says this, God is not a man that he should lie. Titus 1, 2, God who cannot lie. Hebrews 6, 18, it is impossible for God to lie. That can't be said about mere human beings. But it's true of God. That's his character. What about his content here? Why is it greater testimony, the greater testimony of God? It says because he's testified, he has testified concerning his son. Concerning his son, an infinitely greater subject matter we're dealing with. Testifying about Jesus Christ. Think about this, brothers and sisters. People every day in a courtroom testify about a lot of things. Some of them are somewhat important. Some things are more important. Some things are simply trivial. Lawsuits can be filed and filed and filed for a lot of stuff, right? But there is nothing more important than the testimony about the one in whom one's eternal destiny hinges. The means of divine testimony, the superiority of divine testimony, God's, the responses to divine testimony. Let's look at verse 10. It says, the one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Talk is about Christians. Christians believe in the testimony. They hold to the testimony that God has said, that's saving faith. And the reason we do it is because we've been born again. When we were born again, we believed the word of God. By the way, let me let you know, you don't uh, believe and then are born again. You're born again, then believe. How do I know that? Because that's what 1 John 5, 1 tells us. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. You say it says is. What do you mean? Well, that's the English translation. There's a Greek particle there, a participle, and it's really has been. Has been born, indicating in the grammar that one has been born, then again, then one believes. Faith is not the cause of the new birth, but the new birth is the cause of faith. That's why you believed. You were born again. And that moment, you believed. God gave you faith. That's the reality. And we who believe, we believe the testimony. But verse 10, there, is, there are others. Verse 10, it says here, those who do not believe God has made him a liar. Calling God a liar? Unbelief is calling God a liar. Anybody says, I reject Christ. I reject what he did on the cross. I reject all of that. I don't believe any of that. What you're doing at that very moment, you're calling God a liar. You're blaspheming his character. You're maligning his character. And that's a serious thing to do, to call God a liar. Eternal damnation is a certain outcome of people who do that, who persist in unbelief. Calling God a liar. Saying your testimony, God, about your son is not true. They will experience eternal punishment. 
they persist in their repudiation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. One last thing. The eternal result of divine testimony. Verses 11 and 12. What we have here, God has given us eternal life. He's made it available to the people in the saving ministry of his son. Those who believe God's testimony about Jesus Christ believes that eternal life is available and provided in the saving ministry of God incarnate. That's what we believe. That's what we've looked to. We said, yes, yes, eternal life is in your son. There can't be eternal life otherwise. Verse 12. Who has the son has the life. The life means eternal life. But who does not have the son of God has not come to him by faith. Does not have the life. Eternal life. Let me say something right now. Please, please, please don't think that all religions can get you to heaven. If you don't have Jesus Christ, I don't care what they believe or they say they believe. They know God. They do not have eternal life. There is no eternal life apart from God's son. Let me conclude with this. The bottom line of human existence is this. Believing or not believing the divine testimony about Jesus Christ. Eternal life is at stake. Nothing can be of higher importance in anyone's life. Nothing is of greater consequence in anyone's life as to what they do with Jesus Christ. Let me tell you why. If a person refuses Christ, dies rejecting him, that is a permanent state. There is no recovery. If you get COVID, and we pray none in this room gets that, or listening, it's a possibility you can recover. But if you die without Jesus Christ, there is no possibility. You don't recover from that. That's permanent for you. That's eternal for you. There is no fix. No parole. It's forever. For believers, we have this assurance from the highest source and authority in the universe as to the identity of Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. He came from heaven to save sinners. We know who he is. He saved us. What about you? If you're a Christian, you have that certainty. If you're not a Christian, you need to come to know the Lord. He tells the truth. And he's testified to the identity of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray together. Our God and our Father, we thank you for uh, the record of your testimony and the testimony of the Holy Spirit about the Son. We pray for any in this room this morning without the Savior. They will uh, renounce their sin, their unbelief, and trust in Christ alone for salvation, eternal life. 
pray for believers that we will uh, be encouraged and strengthened and comforted and renewed in our understanding, deepened even, about who our Savior is, the certainty of what he did for us. We bless your name that you've uh, given us him for our soul's salvation, to be in your presence forever and ever, to glorify you. We thank you for these things in the name of Christ. Amen.